Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, welcome. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders Podcast. My name is Brady Huggett. I'm the host of this show. And the guest today is Craig Mello. It's a big guest. Craig Mello, co-founder of Atalanta Therapeutics. Craig Mello, who runs the Mello Lab at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And Craig Mello, winner of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 2006. Uh, I didn't know Craig at all. I'd, of course, I'd heard his name and I know his work, but I'd never spoken to him. And I didn't know what to expect. And as we got started, this conversation just took a left turn and I let it go because it was fascinating. And I thought that we were learning a lot about Craig Mello. And that's you know what this show is about. This show is about interrogating the intersection between business and science. And it is also about you know who are these people? Who are these people that are running some of the world's biggest and best-known biotech companies? Who are these people that are running some of these labs that are on the cutting edge? Who are these people who are working in some of our brand new technologies? Who are these people who are launching their first companies? Who are they? How do they view the world and how does that influence their work? And I thought we got a really good look at that. Craig Mello thinks hard about a lot of things, not just science, not just his work, not just UMass, and not just Atalanta Therapeutics. He thinks hard about the world. What is happening in it? Why is it happening? What can be done about it? We talked about how we are not, as a society, teaching the scientific endeavor correctly. It is not to put forth a statement and then go find the evidence that supports your statement. It is to put forth a statement and then try to disprove it. That's the scientific endeavor. And because we are doing this wrong, it is leading to all sorts of social ills. It's leading to the rise in the concept of white supremacy. It's leading to conspiracy theory. It's leading to the fear of the immigrant. He ties all that back to our inability to teach the scientific endeavor correctly. Now, I did manage to get this back to the things that I knew I wanted to ask him about, which was the science behind the work that won in the Nobel Prize. And what is the science behind Atalanta Therapeutics? We talked about that, too. That's all in here. I didn't expect it, but I sure enjoyed it. Here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Craig Mello. Listen up. So I noticed when you called, you at the Rhode Island number. You're not in Rhode Island. I am in Rhode Island. Oh, I've you been, are? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I live in Rhode Island, which is not that far from uh, from UMass. You just drive in. Yeah, actually, I haven't driven in much though. In the last year, I've been working remotely. It's been really nice. Uh, I live right on Narragansett Bay, which is uh, I don't yeah. know if you can see it out the window there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really pretty and uh, nice place to work and. Um, and play. As it turns out, I like to kiteboard, so I, I go kiteboarding a lot out there on the water. It's but how beautiful. are you? How are you running? You know your lab. Or do, do, you must have to go in. No, uh, I don't because uh, I I consult with my students remotely. They're they're of course working. I can't do hands on things to help them, which is a little hard for some of them. But um, yeah, I've been working remotely. That most of them, I just got my first shot, so I'll be able to go back in pretty soon. Yeah, um, what did you get? Moderna. Yeah, me, me too. Where are you located? We're in, I'm in New York. Okay. And they just, um, last week they dropped it from 50 down to 30 last week, so that opened it up. And then I think this week it goes to everybody who wants one who's an adult from 16 up, I think. Yeah, I was happy to get the Moderna shot. So I've got one in the arm. I was too, and it, it didn't. I, I was. I expected it to hurt or something. It. The guy gave me the shot, and I'm like, "You sure you gave me a shot?" I was like, I "Barely." Exactly. Kind of expected it to be a big sort of bolus of uh, exactly. fluid or something. That's what I had the exact much. same thought. I thought, yeah. "Boy, are you sure you know what you're doing?" Because I didn't feel anything go into the. In, but it, it did, definitely did. Yeah. Yeah. You were born in New England. Yeah, you were born in New Hampshire. Originally. That's right. Yep. My family's from this area. And I, I grew up sailing on Narragansett Bay. My, my uh, grandparents settled on my dad's side in Rhode Island uh, when they, their, their families both immigrated from Europe and uh -huh. uh, it, Italian and Portuguese on my dad's side. Oh. And so I grew up sailing on this bay when I was a kid. I learned how to sail here. And uh, when I got the chance to get a job in New England, I was like, I got to buy a place in Rhode Island, you know, so I have, you know, and originally this was a vacation home more or less, but now uh, it's my only home. I sold my home in Massachusetts and I live here and I don't mind the commute. And, uh, you know, to be honest, after COVID's over, I'm not going to go in five days a week because I actually get more done at home when it comes to like writing papers and stuff or grants or anything where you have to really have quiet and think it's way better because nobody's interrupting you yeah you know yeah we, i think a lot of us have found that to be the case but no so it's you, been great i got things are booming in the lab i mean you know biology is just really hot right now with all the the tools we have at our fingertips for for doing things it's there's still a lot to learn Oh, you, I think about this all the time. The, the way that, um, you know, 50 years ago, discoveries were made and we thought, my God, we know so much. Like, it's crazy the things that we know. And now you look back and go, we didn't know anything 50 years ago. Yeah. And then you, you just do the math ahead and, and go, well, this moment that we're in right now, 50 years from now, we'll look back and go, that was just the beginning. We didn't even know anything. And that's what's so, for me anyway, yeah. that's, what, that's, that's what's so exciting about it is we feel exactly. like we're on the cutting edge, but it never yeah. ends. No, it, yeah, it just keeps getting better. You know, who would have thought you could make a drug out of an siRNA and have it knock down a target in the liver for six months to a year? 
you know yeah th- this is uh, this is way better than anyone imagined back even even in the highest days of the hype of our of RNAi nobody thought it would be this long lasting everybody yeah. thought you'd be dosing on a weekly or monthly basis which uh, yeah and and then know. those you know that that dosing problem over time just generally gets better it finds it's a little more potent this time it's a little safer it lets the half life is a little longer but anyway let's i want to go back to you growing up right so you're born in 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 new haven mm-hmm. uh and then i think your your father this was interesting to me well i should say too that i um i read your biography that you wrote for the nobel i thought it was um not only was it useful for research but it was enlightening and there were moments of vulnerability in there and it was a really good read i'm, I'm well when this is over i'll post it uh, for the, the listeners but I, I thought it was really interesting there are a lot of interesting things to talk about and the first one is is that your father was a paleontologist mm-hmm. and so you grew up sort of surrounded by you know the natural world and the way that it has evolved and i have to think that has a huge influence on your love of science yeah, absolutely. And it, I, my mom was an artist, which which was a great combination to have. And both and both are still alive. Uh, you know, incredibly curious people. You know, they <laughs> they just they love reading and and listening to uh, the latest in the science world. You know, and they're in their eighties. And I I just think it's just so refreshing to have. Uh, people like them. I realize now how lucky I was to be brought up by people who every night around the table, we have, we'd have an interesting conversation. Yeah. You know, the, the family would just sit and talk about stuff and it might be, you know, stuff that we learned in school that was wrong. You know, like I was brought up in Northern Virginia and, uh, my high school's, uh, uh, was called the, we were called the rebels, you know, after, and we had a Confederate flag on every one of our lunch trays. I mean, that, oh, that are you was serious. I'm, I'm serious. Oh my yeah. God. I mean, and of course my parents were very liberal and, uh, they understood this sort of, uh, weird Southern attitude towards the, towards the, uh, civil war. But yeah, I mean, it was all kinds of things like that, where you learn so much from the contrast, you know, as a kid, I think that's one of the fascinating things about growing up having gone from new england to the south well yeah but just just in general you learn a lot from you know i think you learn more at home if you're if you're lucky with your parents oh i see you do in school and uh and and a lot of times you get um steered the wrong direction by what you're learning in school anyway but yeah i mean that that's uh that's a an interesting thing uh, about my upbringing too is um, even though my dad was a paleontologist he was uh, very um, conflicted by religion because he was brought up in a Catholic household and um, he was unable to deal with his uh, religious upbringing and so what he did was he foisted that off on on the Catholic church so you know here I am the son of a paleontologist who knows all about evolution sitting in a church classroom where they're teaching us the origin of life by creation and Noah's flood and all of this stuff. And I'm like, you know, so the contrasts were fascinating. I think one of the things about, you know, um, 
one of the challenges I think humans face is that we really aren't very smart. You know, individually, humans are not very intelligent. In order, in order to be successful intellectually, we have to work hard at it. It's easy to be uh, led astray, um, you know, and to, to just sort of go off in, in weird directions and get sucked into believing stuff you shouldn't. So one of the things I found really refreshing about science is that, um, you know, because of the scientific approach, the scientific enterprise uh, is really uh, formulated around the idea that the way you know things is by trying to disprove them. Yeah. Right. And so you don't really know anything for certain. You are constantly trying to test what you think, you know, and, and, you know, I learned that really from, you know, from my parents. And even though my mom's not a scientist, she, she's very critical thinker, you know, which is great. I think, I think, uh, what happens in, uh, right now is happening all the time is that rather than uh, learning things um, that way by being critical and trying to disprove what you, what you uh, believe um, essentially everybody is using the internet to find evidence to support what they believe. And so they, uh, they all get sucked in different directions and nothing, nothing really, there's no, there's no connection anymore. You know, the way that science works, of course, is the opposite. You are always trying to find evidence against your belief and to disprove your belief and to test your belief. And so that brings everybody in the whole world together. You know, everybody who's a scientist all over the world can immediately talk about stuff because we can talk about the ideas and how we're trying to test them and disprove them. That, that the thing you just said about human beings not being very smart as individuals, uh, collectively, we're quite smart. Collectively, we've, I can't believe the things we've accomplished, but all of it is, you know, my contribution, yours, everyone's is a little contribution on top of the vast uh, body of knowledge that's already been accrued. And we just add our little parts over and over and over. Right. You agree with that? I do. I agree with it. And I think that um, we we can accomplish great things and we have a, a bright future if we can. I, I think one of the things we have to do is do a better job of, of teaching people the basics of, you know, it's almost like th- philosophy. It's like, we don't do a good job of teaching people how, how to, how to learn things, how to know things and how to, you know, like, I, I think we really are doing ourselves and I, I don't think there's an easy solution at all. I really, I don't, you know, and, I, and what, I, I hope that someone will figure out a better way. But um, one of the challenges that we face is that while collectively we're making this progress, um, individually and, and even as nations, it's very easy to fall into that trap of believing something that you shouldn't, that there's no basis for, um, you know, like, for example, white supremacy, you know, yeah. people, people who are white wanting to believe that somehow they're special are easily sucked into that. There's no reason, there's no basis for that, but they get sucked into it. 
Uh, and we're seeing a resurgence of that in this country, which is scary. You know, it goes back to yeah. those uh, Civil War uh, flags on my, <laughs> rebel flags on my trays. Um, it's deeply ingrained in our, our um, I mean, and, and as soon as things get bad, like the pandemic, you know, sort of this animal fear <laughs> kicks this in. level of, yeah, this kicks in and, you know, it, 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 you know, the, you could see it in the, the, the anger and the, and the, the hate towards Asians, you know, because the virus emerged in China. I mean, I, I just found that whole thing so disgusting that, you know, even if it were an accident that it escaped from a lab, I mean, of course, that's, that's mild compared to the other, the other ideas that are out there, but still, right. Right. I, I don't know. It, it's it's a real challenge, you know, because we're not doing a very good job of teaching science to our kids. You know, I feel, again, like I, I was incredibly fortunate because having the contrast between going to the Smithsonian all the time and learning from my my parents about science and the world around me. And on the other hand, having this weird thing where the adults teaching uh, the catechism class, you know, the CCD class, uh, where they were, you know, telling me things like the human eye could never evolve. Obviously, you know, it had to be designed because it's too perfect. You know, it, you know, how, you know, what good would a wing be if, if, the, if the animal couldn't fly? So, you know, why, how can you get wings? You can't get them because, you know, the whole thing was, uh, was interesting because it, it, you know, they touch on things that are, are really fascinating uh, in in themselves. You know things like how do you evolve something like an eye or yeah. a wing? You know, which is which I think is actually really kind of cool to think about. But then they they revert to this other argument right away that you, obviously it couldn't evolve and therefore had to be God, created. God did it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but of course the the real answer is that there's fascinating biology behind those questions. And so if you dig into it a little bit more, if you go deeper, then you find that that beauty and the complexity. And the example that I totally love because it's such a simple one is Galileo and his telescope, uh -huh. right? You have all this uh, debate going on, you know, in the science side. And of course the church never debated anything. The earth is the center, everything else is you know, going around the earth. And then you had the Copernican theory, which, you know, correctly placed the sun at the center. And then here comes Galileo with a telescope, right? And the, the church doesn't believe the earth, that, that the earth is not the center, but Galileo points his telescope at Venus, okay? And what do you think he sees? He sees that it's never full. It's always a crescent. And how do you explain that? Well, Copernicus is right. Venus never goes overhead, and so the sun never shines on its full disk. This is why Caper Venus had this weird orbit where it would be on one side of the sun, you know, in the morning, and then it would switch to the evening sky, but it would never go overhead at midnight. And of course, Copernicus knew why. He figured it out. Galileo pointed his telescope at the thing, and he could show the priest, look, it's a crescent. It's got a crescent shape, just like the moon. And, and that's the beauty of science right there. You just look at it, and it tells you the answer. Yeah.
clearly Venus is going around the sun. This this um sort of dichotomy, this 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 um belief you have religion in one corner, which takes a great amount of faith in order to hold itself together. Mm-hmm. God did these things. We believe this. You must believe in the, even though you can't see God, you must believe in him. And then when you when you switch to science, though, it does require a certain amount of faith, a certain, especially when you're beginning. I mean, and the example is like, I, I, I we'll use that. We'll use the earth. We'll go back to space that the earth is round. Okay. I believe that you believe that, but I've never actually been in the spaceship and turned around and looked down and seen this blue and white marble hanging in, a, in, in black and knowing that that's the earth. So in a way, I just have taken on faith that the earth is actually round. And then knowing that I can then set up experiments that test it or disprove it or whatever we want. And do, do you agree that it takes a certain amount of faith to be a scientist in that way? You, you have things that are told to you and you have to take them on faith and then begin to explore on your own. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, again, the, the, the bottom line is the basis of human knowledge is guesswork, you know? So ultimately at the base of all, of all we know, there's a guess, uh, no matter what, right? So if you, you know, the metaphor, one metaphor that I like is this uh, metaphor of, of what the world is that comes from, I don't know, some Asian uh, mythology. The world is riding on the back of a turtle is uh-huh. their mythology, right? And as you, as you, that so you ha- as you learn more about the world, the turtle has to be a little bit bigger, but it's still a turtle down there somewhere <laughs> underneath. The 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 universe is this infinite regression of turtles. The more you learn, sort of the bigger the turtle gets at the bo- at the base. Uh, but but ultimately, you know, the universe is riding on on a turtle's back is perfect. You know, that's at first it was just the earth riding on the turtle. Then it was, you know, the whole universe is now riding on the turtle. The bottom line is, you know, human knowledge is such that, like I said, we can't know anything for certain. Everything is based on a test, you know, so how do you, how do you know what you know, or you think, you know, is right. And ultimately you only know it because you can test it. And so that, that I think is really liberating in a way because, first of all, you have to admit ignorance uh, yeah. at some level. I cannot disprove any theory. Uh, you know, I can show you evidence that's inconsistent with your theory, right? But you could always say, oh, well, that's because I'm doing something wrong or I don't, you know, or how do I, I mean, ultimately that's the, I guess the way that uh, philosophers put it, is there's sort of an ir- irrational leap that lies at the base of science. Mm-hmm. So you have to make an irrational leap, and that leap is that the world is in fact real, and that your experiments are telling you something about an external reality. Because it's equally possible, you know, and I, I actually sometimes I feel like, you know, the, the fact is the universe is so incredible, so weird, and incredible and fascinating, it absolutely leaves open incredible opportunities for there to be anything going on behind, you know, that big turtle at the bottom. It could be God, it could be, who knows, it could be a hacker, you know, some computer dude who's created this incredible program and we're we're running on, his, you know, a disk. We're somewhere. in the matrix. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're in the matrix. And uh, whoever that guy is could give you a, a hellacious life or a really good one. And uh, it's up to it's up to whatever their whims are. I mean, it, it's all possible. And, and I think that's also one of the fun things. Of course, I believe in an objective reality. I, do, I don't believe that, that that's true. But again, I can't disprove it, especially especially if the guy running or woman <laughs> or whatever it is running the computer simulation is really good at their job, then of course we'll, we'll never know. When you, when you say that, so as part, as part of being a good scientist, the idea that keeping in the back of your mind that anything is possible, if someone comes up to you and says, listen, I think that the sun is actually pulled across the sky by a chariot. Your job is to say, okay, yeah, that's okay. That, I mean, that makes a certain sense, right? We know chariots can pull things, but let's see if we can actually prove this. And that's how you start your scientific endeavor. Yeah. I, I think, you know, certain things, they, they start to be the burden of disproving them becomes so large that it, it's hard, it's hard to, uh, you know, really take it seriously. But yeah, I mean, I, I found a, a really a fun exercise at one point I was teaching a, a class um, and um, I had a bunch of, these were undergraduates who were not uh, scientists. And I, I thought of, a, of an experiment that they could do, a thought experiment. And I just asked them to um, propose a hypothesis to explain seasons on the planet Earth and use use the orbit of the earth the sun and w at least one other star that's outside of our solar system to test your model and they uh they all proposed these models the funny thing was that nobody got it right nobody actually proposed uh you know for example if you think about it the test of the model right so like what why is there winter uh -huh. The predominant theory was that the Earth was further from the sun during the winter. And <laughs> it see, you know, but you'd think they would, you know, the point was they were supposed to use their thoughts you yeah. know, to test the model, right? So if the if the star, if the Earth is further from the sun during the winter, then that means it should be winter on both. For everybody, yeah. Uh, every, yeah. You know, nobody... The funny thing is nobody in the class of college level section, it was like 20 kids, not a single one of them realized that it, their, their model would fail that test immediately. The other model was that the earth wobbles like this. Hmm. So during the summer, it's tilted away. The Northern hemisphere is tilted away. They, this is what they learned, right? And in the winter, it tilts back towards the sun. So they're so, all, I mean, both theories are, they're on the right track. They just haven't fully thought it through yeah. yet. Yeah. But the, the, that's why you need the other star. Like if you have Polaris out there, then you know that the earth is not flip-flopping <laughs> through space, right? It's going around the sun with that fixed orientation. Yeah. And none of them got that. So the, the two ideas were the earth gets further away during the winter. And the other was that it's flopping back and forth. And it's, you know, happens to do that once every year, which is silly. Yeah, you know why would it be once every year that it does that? Anyway, I, I find it really interesting when you start to think about what you think you know in the terms of the tests that enable you to know it. That's what 
that's what's very liberating about knowledge, right? Because we wouldn't be having like a QAnon conspiracy theory right now if people were doing that, if people were being critical and asking, well, how do I know that, you know, there was a satellite that was downloading the votes tallies to the districts in Michigan and Wisconsin and, and Georgia, you know, instead of like believing that stuff, they would be like, thinking about, well, what actually, you know, does that, does that actually explain what happened, you know, or can, can that explain what happened? Cause I actually had that conversation and one of With the, uh, well, I don't want to say any names, but no. someone I know happens oh, to no. be sucked up into that. Oh and my it, God. Okay. It was, you know, it's kind of scary, but I realized of course, what they're doing is they're doing this whole thing wrong instead of trying to disprove what they believe they're ser searching for evidence and they're not being critical at all. Exactly. So when they, they saw this news, news, news was news. It was like a, a podcast that someone made from the backseat of their car, literally. Yeah. And I, I looked at it and the, the, the whole idea was that there had been some sort of major espionage thing in Italy and an Italian company that had a, a satellite the satellite was downloading the, the votes into our voting machines uh, directly from, from outer space in orbit. And I'm like, okay, so if they did that, then how did they get the paper ballots to, you know, coincide with the tallies? You know, that's very odd. Plus, you know, there, there are just so many problems with this, this whole idea that it was, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't pass the blink test. And yet a lot of Americans believe this. I, I'm going to I'm going to assume that your conversation did not change this person's mind. No, that's that's what's most despairing about it. No, it's very despairing because they they they're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong at this very fundamental level, which you know is is why you know I think science is such an and we totally don't teach science right. We teach science as though it's a bunch of facts you have to learn, and it's not. You know, like I, I became fascinated in astronomy when I was a kid, in part because I felt like the story of Galileo was so fascinating. You know, and I, may, I built my own telescope when I was a kid because I wanted to see for myself, you know, what he saw. You know, so yeah. I, bu I built a little telescope and uh, the moons of Jupiter and, and the, the phases of Venus. You could see all so that? Oh yeah, it's easy to see. He, with, with a homemade telescope. Yeah, his wow. telescope was was less powerful than mine. It was like only a three or four inch. But yeah, wow. you can you can actually see the moons of Jupiter with binoculars. Oh, um, okay. I should try. Yeah, I would try that. It's hard because they wiggle too much. But right. But yeah, if you hold them steady or use a tripod, you can see them. Um, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I, I just, I'm fascinated by this. So, so okay. So it goes back to, we need to teach science in a way that is not, here's, you have to understand the Krebs cycle and here are the steps of the Krebs cycle. It is, we need to teach how you interrogate the yeah. things you want to find out about. And then that's going to stop people from going on the internet and finding the things that confirm their beliefs. Right. I, I, how do you, how do you test your ideas? You know, don't, don't believe it, test it, you know? And that, that's the, the thing that's fun about that is that when you start doing that, you, uh, you get these surprises. It turns out to be way more complicated than you thought or way more interesting than you thought. That's what's fun about science. You never know what is around that next corner and uh, and over the next hill. It's like constantly being on the border of an unexplored territory. I think there's another thing at play with this QAnon thing, and it's been going on for decades, if not longer. And it's that I don't know that people like being told um, what what to think. I don't think they appreciate necessarily someone who's perhaps smarter than them coming in and saying, no, you're wrong about that. Here's, here's the right thing. And there's a resistance to science along those lines sometimes. And I think yeah. that's also at play here. Do, do you agree with that? Absolutely. There's an, there's, there's a anti-elitist attitude yeah. that's out there. Um, and uh, I don't, I'm not there. I'm not sure, you know, like I said, with this QAnon discussion, I failed. I haven't given up, but I failed uh, to persuade the person. Um, you know, at one point uh, <laughs> during the conversation, the, the, he, the guy was so convinced that he he made me a bet that Donald Trump would be reinaugurated sometime this year, and he bet me a hundred bucks. And I said, "Okay, I'll give you a thousand to one odds, and I'll take your hundred dollar bet." And uh, and when I said that, he uh, backed down. Oh, he he said, I don't, I can't take your money, He's, was basically what he was saying. But uh, his deadline already passed, right? He, he thought it would be before the end of March or something. Uh, well, you gave some... him the year? You gave him a full year? Or he we, wanted we're, year. we were going to have a full year. Um, oh, but yeah, okay. no, at, at that point, everything was fine. Uh, you know, the conversation was still friendly and everything. But at some point... I crossed that line 
that you're talking about where he started to treat me like I was being some sort of a know-it-all or you're, yeah, you're telling me I'm dumb, whatever. And I'm, I was trying not to, I was trying to be respectful, but I was poking holes in the thing, you know, cause the way that the discussion would work was each thing, instead of making an argument himself for what he believed in, he would not do that. He would say, here, look at this. And he'd send me a link and it would be somebody's podcast where the guy is talking about the Jeffrey Epstein thing, right? Jeffrey, oh like God. there's this whole, this, this dark state or deep state conspiracy, this incredible conspiracy that's going on underneath everything. So I listened to this hour long thing and the guy's really persuasive talking about how everything is blackmail and that all of the uh, things that the government is doing is because they're being blackmailed and they, they don't want, they're trying to not be exposed, right? And somehow Trump was immune to this. I don't know, maybe because he was, there was, I, I think part of the theory was that Trump had so many, so much baggage already Oh, he couldn't be it didn't matter. It's like he was Teflon, right? You couldn't hurt him with, he was going to expose everything because he was somehow immune to blackmail, you know, because you could say anything you want about him and it wouldn't change anything. His, his followers would totally yep. take it in stride and, and say, oh yeah, that's okay. Or I don't believe it or whatever, but he was immune to it. But the rest of Washington and, and for that matter, the entire Western civilization, including China, by the way, everybody is being blackmailed by this cartel that's running everything. I mean, and so how, what do you say to that? Yeah, that, that's why it's so pernicious. How do you say that is not correct? The correct thing is this. I, well, I don't know. You know what I told him? What? I, I told him that, um, and, and I think I, I struck a, a chord with him because uh, he had read uh, Tolkien. I, we had both read Tolkien. So I told him he sounded like uh, Denethor after he looked in the Palantir. I don't know if you know that part of the story. No. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the elves made these uh, little crystal balls that you could look into and they would show you the, they would show you what's happening in the whole world. And they'd also show you possible futures and things like that. Anyway, I told him, you know, it was, to me, it was just unbelievable. I told him that that the that this kind of conspiracy could exist. It just seems counter to everything I know because it it would require an incredible sophistication to yeah. orchestrate that. And I I told him, you know, frankly, I don't think the Democratic Party is sufficiently sophisticated to run this kind of incredible, you know, thing where the reason, you know, Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House is because she's like orchestrating some or doing the will of some big cartel. I, I just said this whole that whole thing is just too far fetched to me. I don't think it's possible. And I said, I, you know, as much as you believe in sort of this dark power that's out there, I said, I believe in the the there's another power that's even more powerful, the little the little power inside of the heart of every little hobbit 
who goes out, you know, the, uh, the story in, in, of course, in the Lord of the Rings is the hobbits are these little, yeah, yeah. but courageous little dudes, right? And they come on to this scene where all of this havoc is being wrought and they just persevere and they do what's right. And I'm like, I just believe that the human spirit is, it's like that, you know, it's indomitable. You ultimately good prevails when good people are given a voice and you let them, you know, exercise it. And I still believe that. You know, so. you, in your, it, this is, this goes back to that bio thing that you wrote that I like so much that you had this moment when you were a kid where you were, uh, you were young, this is in Virginia, I think. And you were up in the morning as a spring day or summer day. And you were in the Creek, you were flipping over rocks, looking for animals, doing what you do about the natural world. Yep. And this box turtle started to cross the road. And this kind of out of nowhere, this car comes screaming over the road and the, the driver purposefully swerves to hit the box turtle. Yeah, It's a teenage boy and he drives off and the turtle wasn't dead. It was, its shell was cracked and it was still trying to get to the other side of the road and you were sort of trying to help it and it died. And it's just, it's just like, it seems that there are two kinds of people in the world. This is a vast oversimplification, but there's two kinds. There are people who will swerve to hit the turtle and those like you who were trying to help it kind of watch it go across the road. Yeah. And I don't know what to do with that. I, I think the general, the general feeling of human beings when they meet each other, like when someone falls down, the general feeling is, ooh, let's help that person up. That's the first base response of most humans. Right. But there are others much rarer who do not feel that way. And I, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, well, I, un, unfortunately, I, 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 that was a lesson for me, you know. But I, I think when I was a kid, um, I had a lot of lessons like that. You know, because I remember my my friends, uh, some of them were racist, you know, because I was Some growing Virginia. up in the South. Yeah. yeah. And I remember coming home uh, really concerned because some kids I knew were yelling uh, at a black kid to go back to Africa. And I told my parents how upset I was and what should I do? You know, and uh, what they say, they said, you should you should. Uh, of course, never do that. But these kids were bigger than me. You know, like, I didn't, I was too afraid. Yeah, to like, go and try to defend the, they, there was no violence. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think, unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. You know, there are people out there who are, for whatever reason, cruel. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's some. That's another reality that we, as a species, have to contend with. I think it's also, uh, you know, part of why I say we're not very smart. You know, we we're capable. I think cruelty is a sign of of not being very smart. There's no reason to be cruel. You know. Um, yeah. And and I think, like you, I think most people value that good side. You know, of of people, and yet. There are a lot of there's a lot of people who value that, but then they're afraid. They're they fear people that are who are not like them. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons there's such a fear of the immigrants yeah. coming over the border. You know these caravans. You know people get afraid that there's this terrible caravan coming. I just think of the suffering those people are going through. Yeah, the fear mongering appeals to that side of our our nature 
that fears the the unknown or the alien and those are deeply yeah. ingrained ingrained i think in our biology that and then that fear leads i mean fear directly breeds anger and lashing out that's how it goes so yeah yeah i i thought you were going to talk to me about uh atalanta <laughs> I'm, I'm going to i'm going to um i i do i want to talk about one thing huge thing in your life first and then we can start talking about atalanta okay but uh, obviously the nobel right this came out of your work. At, you met Andrew Fire at Harvard, if I'm if I'm not wrong. Uh, let me think. I knew him uh, before that, actually, but I I knew him through our work. We didn't actually physically meet, uh, except occasionally we met at meetings. But yeah, yeah, he he was a competitor at first, working in the same area. Yeah, trying to accomplish the same thing, which was to put put uh, DNA back into the animal, which yeah. no, no one had succeeded in doing yet. So. Yeah. And so, but I think I thought you then went to Seattle, you were at Fred Hutch in Seattle and you were still collaborating or still in contact. What are you doing? Here's what I'm doing. What do you think about this back and forth? Yeah, that, that, so when I was at Harvard, I got to know Andy because my project as a graduate student was, a, a you know, trying to reintroduce genes into the animal uh, via DNA transformation. Andy got that working first and the in part based on the methods he used, I got it working even better. Uh -huh. And we, we basically together, we basically made the organism uh, sort of uh, made the protocols necessary for transforming the organism with DNA. So that part, we that's when we got to know each other uh, pretty well and became, I would say, more like friends than competitors. At first, it was, I was like, it was, Andy was the guy I didn't want to know. He, I didn't want him to know what I was working on because I thought, you know, I was, I had to beat him. Yeah. You know, it was sort of that sort of competitive nature. And then ultimately, uh, it became clear that uh what we were trying to do was was difficult and nothing was working uh and so we started talking to each other more on the uh sort of with the approach of you know well what did you try lately i tried this and it didn't work how about that you know this kind of thing but then uh yeah while i was in seattle uh that we published that that paper was published uh, that sort of like advanced the the methodology in the field uh, considerably. Um, you know, it was more of a methodological advance. It was nothing uh, nothing really noteworthy, uh, certainly, but it was important and it got a huge number of citations because everybody uses that that method. They still do. Um, but uh, in the course of the time I was at um, in Seattle. Uh, another group uh, who I also knew very well, um, uh, Ken Kempfew's group at Cornell, uh, in sort of in desperation, decided to try to use antisense to silence a gene uh, yep. <clears throat> that they had identified. It's a, it's a really funny story. I mean, th this is almost one of those stories that makes you uh, question reality because it's just such a weird story. So. Uh, there's this gene PAR1 that nobody could clone. 
it, it was just really hard to clone this gene. And uh, my one of my colleagues um, at Harvard was trying to clone this gene. And uh, her name is Abby Telfer. Mm-hmm. And I was helping her. And um, she tried, we tried everything. I was good at at DNA transformation at, toward the end of my graduate work, uh, I had sort of solved this problem and I was helping her try to inject DNA to try to do what we call rescue. Cause once you rescue the mutant, then you can narrow down the rescuing DNA and you can find the gene that's responsible. She worked on this and she worked on this and couldn't do it. And so in desperation, she was about to do antisense. Uh, this was, back in um, probably 1988. Oh, okay. Antisense was brand new. Antisense was new then, but it was still, it was, uh, it was, it was something you could do, right? So she was going to try to use antisense to knock out the genes in the interval to see if any of them gave her a phenotype like R1, Mm -hmm. which has a very beautiful, distinctive phenotype. So she, um, she was all ready to do this. And it was one of those funny things where she had uh, her advisory committee meeting, uh, which is composed of Harvard faculty. And she, she and I were going to do this. I, she was going to make the RNA, and I was going to inject the antisense RNA throughout this whole interval for her. And she comes back after having that meeting and said, they don't believe antisense is going to work. They don't want us to do it. Uh, they think it's a waste of my time. They want me to just sort of publish what I have, and that'll be the end of my thesis. Um, and so she did. She published this story, which was very depressing because she didn't clone the gene. Um, and then uh, after she graduated, uh, another lab, Ken Kempfew's lab at Cornell, uh, who originally was working on PAR1 as well, decided to try to clone PAR1. And they, they did a beautiful, you know, long study, you know, like three years later, four years later, they have very good evidence that the gene is this gene. Uh, and then they do, they decide, well, we can't get it to rescue. For some reason, you couldn't, the DNA wouldn't rescue. I, don't, I still don't know why the DNA for injection of the DNA couldn't rescue. And that was considered an important test to finalize and prove that you have the gene. So they decided to do antisense. So they did antisense on PAR1, the experiment that Abby Telfer was, was told to not to do. Yeah. And yeah. as soon as they did it, it was incredible because when they did antisense, they got this beautiful phenocopy of the PAR1 phenotype. It looked identical to PAR1. But the thing that was really weird was when they did the control, which is injecting the sense RNA, they got the same phenotype exactly. So they got the PAR1 phenotype, whether they injected sense RNA or anti-sense RNA. And it was uh, incredible, incredible phenocopy that lasted uh, for a long time. And, and when, I, when I read about that, of course, I, kn- I knew Ken, he told me about it. I, I, I started using it myself. And at 1994 is when I set up my own lab. And so I set up my own lab and the way that they had done the experiment with PAR1 is they had used the same microinjection method we developed for DNA, but they injected RNA. And so everybody thought you had to inject RNA into the gonad 
because that's number one, that's where PAR1 is expressed. Number two, you know, PAR1 affects the embryos. So you would think you'd have to inject it into the germline yeah. in order to get embryos that are affected. So in my new lab, um, I was teaching a student how to inject antisense RNA. We called it antisense at the time. I, I was telling them how to do it and showing them how to do it. And uh, I was watching the procedure on the monitor while the student was trying to inject different parts of the worm's body. And they kept missing. The, the gonad was, is kind of a hard target. These worms are tiny, right? Yeah. So they were, they, the needle wasn't inserted properly. And, you know, like a good PI, I'm like, oh, nice try. You know, let's check those tomorrow and see what happens. And, and it, was, it was amazing because the next day, every single injected worm, regardless of where the needle had gone, uh, gave 100% uh, PAR1 dead eggs, 100% not PAR1, this was a different gene. But the, the weird thing was, um, if you injected DNA, we, we knew from hard, hard work that to get a DNA transformant, you had to inject the DNA into the germline. If you inject the DNA into the germline, precisely as Andy and I had worked out for DNA transformation, you get affected progeny. If you don't, if you inject it into the intestine or the gut or body cavity, Nothing happens, no DNA inheritance at all, as you might expect, because the DNA doesn't get into the germline. Well, yeah. the RNA that caused the silencing in the germline didn't have to be injected into the germline. I remember looking at that and, and going, I can't believe it. This is just amazing. So, you know, we went back and intentionally injected into the head and the tail and every other part of the animal. It didn't matter. There was a, Everywhere systemic, a yeah. systemic response to the silencing. And of course, you know, I called Andy and I told him, you know, this is amazing. You know, you should check it out. Uh, and, you know, we started sort of brainstorming about this. Uh, one of the other things that was amazing was that it was inherited. So, you know, you could see this effect where, you know, you'd expect inheritance with DNA, right? But with RNA, yeah. you really wouldn't. So that's, to me, in, in seeing the inheritance, I, you know, my feeling was that this explained why the sense and the antisense RNA both worked because what was happening was the RNA was somehow recognized as foreign and was being used as a template to make more RNA that would then silence. So there was some sort of either, there was some sort of an amplification process involved. Um, there had to be, because it was just too potent. You know, you could inject you could really dilute it too. You could dilute it a lot, and it it was complete potent, completely potent. You know, so so Andy Andy took a more like he took a different approach, and he said, "Let let me think about this. Maybe there's maybe there's something, you know, maybe there's some antisense RNA contaminating the the sense RNA." So he started like really in his lab, trying to figure out whether there was, uh, you know, double-stranded RNA uh -huh. in, in particular that might be more potent. And so he produced pure sense RNA and sent it to me, and he did it in his own lab as well, and it didn't work, no silencing at all. But when he mixed the sense RNA with antisense RNA uh, and made double-stranded RNA, 
and purified that, it worked much better. So the idea then was that the, the silencing trigger was double-stranded RNA, not sense RNA or antisense RNA. But, um, you know, I still believe there had to be an amplification step. I mean, so did he, for that matter. But we didn't know what it was, and that, and that came, that came uh, a, a few years later. But the, the bottom line was that um, we wrote this paper in 1998 describing double-stranded RNA as a trigger for this silencing mechanism. And uh, the, we, we were really thinking, you know, we, we sent it to nature, but we didn't expect it to get accepted because we had no idea what the mechanism was. Yeah. Zero. There was no mechanistic insight at all. But we just figured it was some sort of a dsRNA triggered maybe like an antiviral immune response and uh and mm. of course the paper got published and uh the whole you know it seemed like uh everybody in the world was like uh working on something related to what we had, although again we didn't have any of the genes in, involved yet. do you remember getting the phone call? From the Nobel yeah, Committee, of course. <laughs> what happened? Uh, well, yeah, that that's a funny story um, because the um, we have a daughter who's type one diabetic, and you know, normally the that call it comes really late at night, and you know, it was it was way too early. I didn't think that Andy and I I knew that we might be in contention for it, so I, I did. I turned the phone on next to the bed just in case. Right. Yeah. But, um, usually that was off, but it, anyway, I, I left the bedroom early in the morning cause my daughter's blood sugar was, I checked it and it had been, um, it had been, you know, sort of high or something. And I, I wanted to double check cause I had given her insulin earlier in the night. So I happened to be up and I, um, was checking her blood sugar. And uh, when I came back to the room, the phone started ringing. And my wife said, uh, you know, don't pick it up. It's a crank call. Because she had just picked it up and hung up on the guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I told her, you know, they're, they're going to announce the Nobel Prize tonight. I think I better answer it. So I, I answered it. And it was this uh, guy, Hans Jornval, with this very very uh swedish accent and I, um, uh, I couldn't believe it i'm like you know i was I, I, i'm sorry my wife just hung up on you i was uh, <laughs> i was checking my daughter's uh, blood sugar and he's he's like oh i work on insulin and he was uh we started talking about diabetes and everything but yeah no I, it was it was pretty amazing and i remember i um i called my mom and dad and uh you know my, it, it's great to have a mom like mine, right? So she's, she, I, I had been telling her about some of the stuff I was just talking about. I'm all enthusiastic about the work that I'm doing, you know? And, and of course I, I was telling her in the morning of the call that I got this call and she's like, Craig, that's so great. Can you win another one? <laughs> And she's like so excited about the priorities and stuff. She wants she wants me to to win another one already. It was funny because um, it was it was so innocent. It was just like, you know, it wasn't. She's not the kind of mother who you know wants it for herself. She just 
she just believes in in me so much you know it was really really yeah. cute but um we had a you know of course quite a celebration and uh it it was it was a lot of fun the fun thing about it in part is that when you work on a, a little worm like this especially when you're working on a, a worm at a medical school people often like are like why are you what working are you on a worm yeah. you know what is yeah. this stuff you know what what's you know, and then to once you've got the sort of the platform of the Nobel Prize, then they want to hear the story. They realize it's probably interesting. You prefer, um, yeah, probably. If it wins a Nobel, it's probably interesting. Yeah. 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 So anyway, it, it turns out that um, it, it's been a lot of fun uh, to get that opportunity to talk to lay people and actually yeah. have, have them listen. So that, that's been a lot of fun. Um, well, this, this is like, this is a good segue into Atalanta because after, you know, even before the Nobel, I, I suppose, but there's a period of time where I just remember that all these companies were being formed around RNAi and the big thought was, do they have access to the fire and mellow patents? And if they did, then they had a certain legitimacy to them. If they didn't, you go, well, I mean, how, how good can they be if they don't have the fire and mellow patents? Because you've co-founded a few companies now. Yeah, yeah. but it's actually more complicated. Uh, it turns out that Andy and I, in our, our, our goal was to make RNAi uh, freely a bit available to uh, be developed both in universities and in companies. So we didn't, yep. we didn't uh, make many restrictions at all. We, you know, like Merck and Pfizer, all the big companies licensed our, our technology. We let, we didn't have any exclusivity to it. We, we licensed it to anyone who wanted to use it, um, and for a relatively low fee. Um, and um, unfortunately, what what happened, or maybe fortunately, I don't know, I think it's unfortunate, um, is that, that that worked to some extent, but the, uh, the patents from uh, MIT came along and uh, the Tushel IP around yeah. getting it to work in um, humans was important. And that's more the IP that you're referring to there. The IP that put a lock on the field was this um, siRNA IP, you know, and this, this impacted the company that I tried to start, which, you know, I, I don't think it failed because of this, but given, given the difficulties in that were, lying ahead in the future it was hard to access money if you didn't have the mit ip even yeah. though you know as far as i could tell as as someone working in the field you didn't need that ip and you know we we also didn't believe that mit had a lock on it that they could block others from developing sirna so we started a company uh, called RXI that that did um, did okay, but you know, like other companies that faced this huge obstacle that became clear that you know naked siRNAs are not going to work. Uh, it couldn't get through that hard spell, and Alnylam survived it because yeah. they had had resourced you know and and gotten these these uh, huge partnership deals and so on. They had had succeeded in weathering that that downturn yeah and so uh, what you know to the to the sort of as part of the atalanta story 
when we were building RXI, uh, I recruited um, Anastasia Kavorova. I, I recruited Anastasia because she was uh, this really great sort of leader in in RNA chemistry and had published a nice work. And she was also working in another company uh, that had recently been, I think, acquired by Thermo Fisher, Dharmacon. And um, so she she came to RxI to head up our chemistry group and to try to develop stabilized siRNAs that would work, you know, instead of not work, which is what was, you know, the stuff that was being put into the clinic should never have gone into the clinic. It's not yeah. going to work, right? Yeah. So yeah. we were trying to develop siRNAs that would work, and we hired Anastasia to do it. But uh, you know, the the company couldn't weather the downturn. And uh, Anastasia didn't have any budget to do any research. So we recruited Anastasia to the RTI at UMass, which is this new RNA Therapeutics Institute that we started uh, back in, like, I think she came over in 2012. But we, re we built this new building in 2008 and uh, dedicated a couple of floors to what we call the RTI, which is uh, now where Anastasia and I both work. And um, Anastasia, you know, started developing siRNAs that were chemically stabilized, and uh, she started interacting with people like Neil Aronin and Bob Brown, who had um, these terrible intractable neurological disorders that they wanted to treat. But what Anastasia did was she methodically worked to stabilize the siRNA chemistry. Um, improving both you know the all the features of the of you know in fact all of the work that had been done prior uh on delivery of siRNAs was flawed because it, it, it you know people didn't know yet how to make an siRNA that was protected from degradation the the so all of the siRNAs that were made and used prior including the ones used in the clinic uh, had a really, really terrible uh, stability and would be you know, rapidly turned over if injected into the sub-Q or into the blood or brain yeah. or wherever. They just wouldn't last. They lasted minutes, you know. <laughs> uh, so the first thing she did was is develop a fully stabilized um, backbone chemistry. And in fact, there's no RNA left. You know, there's not a single natural linkage I see. Uh, yeah. left. And so she did that, and and then uh, you know because she's interacting with uh, largely because of Neil, but also Bob. Bob Brown actually moved his lab from Harvard to uh, UMass to um, you know take advantage of of the expertise that we had in siRNAs because Bob believed that it was going to be the only way to help his patients who have you know ALS, and Bob and Neil are MDs and they're tired of not having anything to give their yeah. patients. Yeah. So, We're all tired um, of that. And Anastasia doesn't know how to say no. So she comes to UMass and uh, Neil and Bob, uh, you know, set up collaborations with her to try to deliver to the brain. And so she works with them for, you know, for a couple of years, especially with Neil, they had a lot of programs to try to treat Huntington with Neil Aronin. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because Neil uh, worked with Al Nylum 
on Huntington. And he was trying to get alnylam. He, he, he didn't care who did it. He just wanted a drug. So he worked with alnylam and alnylam had a whole program in Huntington, but ultimately gave up because they couldn't get good knockdown in the brain at all. When Anastasia came, um, that project got revitalized because Anastasia was getting the chemistry to work better. She got the chemistry stabilized, but the problem was you, you, you know, especially for Huntington, you need to deliver into the very deep parts of the brain and siRNAs do deliver in the brain. If you dose them enough, you can get a delivery into the cortex, but you can't get it into the, uh, the deeper parts of the brain. And what, by um, what delivery by, uh, CSF puncture? CSF infusion. Oh, in a okay. mouse model, that's done by injecting directly into the brain. Yeah. But in a larger animal, you can do it uh, through the lumbar puncture yeah. approach. Yeah. Um, but in any case, uh, they worked on it, and they worked on it for years uh, not with, with not that much success. Uh, and they were trying a whole variety of different conjugates. You know how Galnac works very well for yep. liver delivery. They were looking for other conjugates. And one of the conjugates they were trying was uh, vitamin D, but they couldn't get the conjugation to work. And so whenever they tried to conjugate vitamin D, they'd get like, you know, 20% vitamin D conjugated to the siRNA, but there were a lot of other contaminants and they were having trouble getting it pure. So they went ahead and inject sort of this more dirty mix, which Anastasia hates to do, but they did it anyway. So it it was a contaminated mixture that had uh, vitamin D conjugated siRNAs, and it worked incredibly well. It delivered throughout the brain into those deep parts of the brain, and it stayed in the brain. The whole brain was pink with huh. uh, the fluorescently labeled siRNA, and uh, was very exciting. The animals were fine, and yet there was a really beautiful delivery into the brain. And of course, they finally purified the vitamin D conjugated siRNA and it didn't deliver into the brain at all. It was just secreted from the CSF very rapidly. What, what it turned out was that some of the contaminants in Anastasia's uh, brain vitamin D conjugated siRNA mixture were divalent siRNAs that had been linked together by the bridging chemistry. So uh, basically, you now had two siRNAs joined together Mm -hmm. by a short uh, linker um, that uh, when that was delivered into the brain, they stayed in the CSF. The CSF was pink for three days after the initial infusion. She got delivery throughout the brain and they got this beautiful knockdown in the brain as well. And as you can imagine, it opened the opportunity for uh, the formation of a company around uh, sort of a platform where this is Atalanta you're talking about. This is Atalanta. So we we of course decided to um, you know bring this uh, you know to try to bring an infusion of money uh, from the private sector in order to get this uh, into the clinic. You know we needed to raise a lot of money because Huntington even a small clinical yeah. trial is incredibly yeah. expensive. So yeah. Anyway, so we we started working on. Uh, building Atalanta uh, on the basis of that work, you know, now they're, they're getting ready to go into humans with siRNAs that will hopefully treat 
uh, Huntington, although Huntington is a difficult target yeah. um, because of some of the complexities with the genetics, uh, we're hopeful that if silencing full-length Huntington is going to be therapeutic, which we hope it will be, uh, you know, and not cause some deleterious effects, which again is hopeful based on some data, but again, hopeful. We think we can lower the levels of, of full-length Huntington in, in a human to close to zero throughout most of the brain. Uh, but the, the beauty of these drugs, of course, is that the platform is programmable. So any uh, brain disorder you know, that where the genetic underlying basis is understood becomes an opportunity to make a drug. And um, there are many, many opportunities. Um, listen, this has been great. This is really, really enjoyable. Good. Did you have a you good too. time at least? Yeah. Okay. I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to talk to you. And uh, I really appreciate, uh, I didn't expect such a wide ranging conversation, but. Uh, I think you were it, leading the way on that. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I, I tend to I tend to like these uh, philosophical discussions, and uh, I think at the at the root, uh, some of those are kind of an underlying drive for all of my, you know, curiosity in life. You know, it's just yeah, uh, yeah. the whole the whole sort of being being alive in this weird universe is just sort of it's fun. You know, it's it's interesting and it's fun and every day is different. And uh, I just uh, feel like, you know, that's a big part of what makes life uh, worth living. Hold on, I'm going to stop this. Hold on a second. Okay. All right, there it is, your first Rounders podcast with Craig Mello. Thank you, Craig, for taking the time to have that talk with me. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. If you'd like to discuss this podcast, our journal Nature Biotechnology, or anything that we do, you can reach us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. I will find that biographical essay that Craig wrote for the Nobel Prize and put it in our community page, along with um, information on his work in Atalanta Therapeutics. I have two doses of Moderna in my arm now, so I'm fully vaccinated. Um... So maybe I'll be on a plane soon to visit friends and family and my nephew, Oliver. I'm talking to you. Okay. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 